Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description. Ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bibliophiles. Adam Andrews here once again, along with the whole Center for Lit crew, ready to embark on another scintillating journey through the world of classic literature. Let's call the roll, shall we? Center for Lit director, homeschool veteran, and longtime book collector, Missy Andrews. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Marketing and public relations manager, writing tutor, and Anglo-Saxon enthusiast, Ian Andrews. Well, hi. Hi, glad you could make it. Me too. Web designer, office manager, writing tutor, and fount of new ideas, Emily Andrews. Hi. Hi, Em. Hi. All the titles are really official, and um, all of our last names are Andrews. <laughs> what does that say about this operation? <laughs> A little nepotism, do you think? Is that we just, we just went ahead and deputized the whole family. <laughs> <laughs> we deputized the whole family. Well, glad to have you guys along. No matter what your last names are, let's get right down to business. Today's topic is a term that we use all the time at Center for Lit to describe a key aspect of our mission. And it's the topic I want to discuss today. The term is the great conversation. We talk about it on every page of our website. We talk about it in all of our printed materials. One of the main goals of our, of our organization and our community is to get parents involved in this great conversation and to give them the tools to help their kids get involved in the great conversation. And I thought we'd take a little time today and discuss that term, define it, explain where it comes from, and discuss what it means, especially in our role as teachers and parents. So let me just throw that out to you uh, as a way to get started. Where does this term come from, this great conversation? What does it mean? How are we to understand it? Missy, maybe you should weigh in first on this topic. Sure, sure. Um, when we talk about the great conversation, we're kind of referencing a term that Mortimer Adler and his colleague Robert Hutchins um, created in order to talk about the canon of Western literature. The canon of Western literature. So so Western lit as a whole. Yes, the, the classics oh, of the Western class. literature. Okay. And they conceived of the classics as a conversation, an ongoing conversation about the great ideas, mm -hmm. that is the universal ideas that have been discussed um, in fiction and nonfiction down through the ages. Mortimer Adler would have, uh, not Mortimer Adler, but um, uh, Matthew Arnold would have called those things the best that have ever been thought or said. Ah, uh, okay. Right? And um, they saw the progress of literature from ancient to modern as individual thinkers and writers, um, both thinking about those great ideas, those universal ideas, and responding to other thinkers who um, preceded them, predated them, uh -huh. right? Whose thoughts they'd read and entered into um, through the things that they left behind, you know? So these guys saw literature and, and philosophy and all kinds of intellectual activity as an ongoing discussion about these ideas, between men who lived in different times and different 
ages and different places. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I have a quote here from Mortimer Adler. He said, the tradition of the West is embodied in the great conversation that began in the dawn of history and that continues to the present day. What binds authors together in an intellectual community is the great conversation in which they are engaged. In the works that come later in the sequence of years, we find authors listening to what their predecessors have had to say about this idea or that, this topic or that. They not only hearken to the thought of their predecessors, they also respond to it by commenting on it in a variety of ways. So Adler really did see um, these ideas as being the subject of continued conversation down through the ages. And those people um, who are writing in more modern times are responding to everything that their predecessors um, thought and said on the subject. Okay. That seems, that seems pretty clear. Um, let's have a couple of comments from, from all of us as we think of it. What kind of ideas are we talking about here? Uh, this great conversation is uh, carried on between people at different times and different ages. What, what is it that, that, that they're discussing? It seems to me that the thing that links all of it together is uh, the questions that they're asking. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, their answers that are going to be similar or um, from the same perspective, but the, every human is concerned with the same questions, such as who are we? What is our purpose? Ah. Uh, what's a what's a man? What right? is a man? What does it mean to be what, a man? Why, why are we here on this earth? Yeah. What is love? And I had a professor in college that asked the question to say, what's a good love and what good is love? What's a good man and what good is man? What's a good death and what good is death if death is good at all? You know, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that's a really clear way to talk about the universal things that all men, regardless of their place and time in history, have been concerned about. Do the questions extend to uh less philosophical topics like uh you know, what's a good society? Oh, absolutely. Um, and what's individual rights uh, of against the government, you know, that those sorts of things as well. Definitely. And, and those are, are equally as philosophical as those other ones. That I, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right. Okay. So a com and we, we talk about these ideas under the rubric of universal themes uh, for the reason that you are just implying that everybody's in is, as Emily said a minute ago, everybody is concerned with them sure. at one degree or another. To some extent, they define the human conversation, right? What does it mean to be a human being living in, living in a material world, right? Ian, this is a question for you. Do you think that, that everyone, regardless of whether they would consciously agree to it or not, or consciously understand it or not, is concerned with these ideas? Is this, are these common to all men at some level? Well, yeah, and that's something I was going to say a second ago, although my wife jumped in and actually said it maybe better than I could. When she was talking about the, the questions defining that conversation rather than the answers, and I think the only reason for that is that um, everybody participates, whether knowingly or unknowingly, in the conversation, and they don't really have a choice about it because they are human beings. Um, and so life experience, no matter how different it is from the guy standing next to you, um, still leads you to contemplate things like God and yourself and what your mind is made of and uh, all that's required in order to be a part of that conversation is breathing. Um, but Adler puts a sharper point on it when he talks about how a backward glance and to my mind a humble backward glance that's open to learning from people who have thought really articulately the thoughts that are in your own mind mm -hmm. um, can actually make you a knowing participant in that conversation. And I think 
um, the farther we take that train of thought, the more it seems to me that um, the real meat of a true education is a humble, knowing, backward glance at a conversation that you've been participating in since you opened your eyes for the first time. Ah, and that your ancestors were participating in too, and that maybe they uh, had answers that would be, that would do you good to understand. Right, exactly. So this great conversation then, obviously, from the perspective of a Center for Lit discussion, centers on literature. Our, our main focus in terms of the curriculum is literature and the, uh, the written word and the classics. Uh, I think everybody could see, if they thought about it for a minute, that a great author, let's say Aristotle or Shakespeare or Milton or Dickens, is participating in a conversation more or less um, self-consciously, more or less directly. And he's a Aristotle, for example, responding to his own teachers and his students responding to him. So we, we can understand that literature is the, the stuff of the great conversation. What about more recent stuff? What about stuff in other um, disciplines? Is this idea of a great conversation broader than just the classics? You know, I don't, I think that in the same way that, um, it's impossible for a human being to walk out the door and uh, not be a part of that conversation. The moment that you do something, you choose an action, uh, you're participating in, you're making decisions about what you think is important mm -hmm. uh, and who you are. In the same way, when an author creates a character, the moment that creator character starts uh, participating mm -hmm. And, or starts making decisions or starts encountering action, whether or not the author intends to participate in the conversation or not, he is. I see what you mean. He's saying in effect, this is how it goes. This is my view of how it goes and inviting his reader implicitly or explicitly to agree or disagree, to participate in that conversation with him. You're saying that individual characters are motivated by particular, um, worldviews and truths that the author attributes to them and then governs their actions right. accordingly. So they are, um, we can construe them as we read those works as representing answers to those, to those questions in the conversation, or sometimes rather than answering them, I'm being confronted with them and grappling with them. Right. Which uh, in that way, um, popular fiction can be, a rewarding in the same way i mean you know obviously the classics are always going to be the most rewarding but we can still ask the same questions and exercise the same brain power when we approach a ya book or something of that vein because we're going to find out something about the author and that, about human beings and i love that answer because because when i read um Aristotle or Plato, what I get is explicit paragraphs on the question of what is a human being? And Aristotle goes to great lengths to describe it. And his, his actual topic is the, the nature of a human being. Emily is suggesting that a, a recent young adult fiction book that's on the New York Times bestseller list is answering that question too, maybe in more subtle ways, but no less right. pertinent to the great conversation. Is that right, Emily? Absolutely. I, totally enjoy a page turner. Uh, <laughs> I would much rather take a page turner to the beach than uh, my tome of Aristotle. <laughs> um, but I don't think that that's uh, lazy or it doesn't have to be lazy in any way. Does it go ahead? Go ahead, Missy. Yeah, I, I can just hear um, homeschool parents 
um, recoiling in horror at the idea of <laughs> YA fiction, um, which, you know, we kind of cast a spurious glance at anyway, in this day and age because of its general content, you know, and grouping right. that in with um, literature that would be considered worthy of participation in the great conversation of Western civilization. <laughs> and, you know, as I'm sitting here thinking about their responses and, and the question marks written on their furrowed brows, I, um, I'm reminded of another passage from um, Adler's little essay on the great conversation in which he talks about the fact that um, we we do wrong to consider the great conversation as the repository of truth. Oh, that's interesting. That it's a mm -hmm. repository of both truth and error. Basically what it is, is the recording of man's thoughts about the great ideas. And some of them um, lit on the truth mm -hmm. and some of them lit on error and most of them lit on truth and error. Right. You it's know a, what I mean? They're a combination yeah. because they were written by men who are fallen and their minds and their reason is fallen. So there's a lot of sifting that goes on as you read um, the classics. And as you continue to read, I mean, you got to remember that the classics weren't classics when they were written. Yeah. I mean, um, when you think about what is a classic, gen it's generally accepted that unless a book has been around and continues to be read 50 years after its publication date, then it's not really time to consider it a classic. We got to wait and see if it has staying power, if it partakes of the universal questions and conversations or only immediate questions and conversations pertinent to an individual time period in history. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, all that to say that the, the things that we deem classics now weren't considered classics when they were written. So we can assume then that some of the things being written today will be considered classics in 50 to 100 years. We just don't know which ones they are yet. And there's a lot of sifting that goes on as we um, consider the merits of indiv individual books that are being published today. And one of the ways that we can consider those merits is to engage with the ideas that they present their thematic ideas and consider them in light of the great conversation that preceded it and, and decide and discover, are they asking the pertinent questions? Um, are they asking those questions beautifully? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, we can consider their right. literary merit. That brings up a question in my mind though, that I think may be pertinent to, uh, to homeschoolers and teachers and parents that, that are listening to this podcast. And that is why should we participate in that conversation? I mean, we've described it. There's something going on that you can look at the history of intellectual activity and literature and art and philosophy as a conversation. And maybe even as Emily suggested a minute ago, and Ian suggested a minute ago, you're participating in it, whether you want to or not, is it a good and necessary thing to do it self-consciously? Why, why should we be concerned? Ian, go ahead. Well, I, I think it is, and I think it goes back to what I was saying a second ago about what an education is, um, and, and there are a lot of different ideas about what makes up a good education and what, what are the components of a good education, but I think most everyone, if they stopped and thought about it, would agree with the goal of a good education, which is to make a, a complete thinking person out of you. Um, or at least a humble one. Right, well, or at least a humble one, but, but I think those are kind of the same thing. Right. Um, I mean, when it comes to educating a student, what we're trying to do is broaden the horizons of their mind. Okay. Um, and you can't have broad horizons without understanding how small you yourself are. And so um, 
I guess what I would say is the best way to get a broad mind, the best way to achieve an understanding of how small you are in the landscape of this conversation that has been happening for centuries is to look back over those centuries and watch it happen. Uh-huh. Um, and I guess that's a, that's one of the reasons, and this is a common argument that, that we toss around at Center for Lit all the time, but I think that it might be the most important way to make a, a real honest person out of you. Um, there's a way in which if you're not aware of how small you are in the scope of, of this long conversation, um, you're not aware of some of the pertinent parts of being a human being as they've been recorded down across the centuries. I really agree. Um, it makes me return to the idea of what is an education. Yeah, right. right? Education comes from the root word educare, which means to lead out of. And an education really is designed to lead you out of yourself Ah. to some degree. That is to make you aware. I mean, consider a child born into the world. The whole world revolves around him as far as he knows. Mm -hmm. He's basically trapped inside himself. Mm -hmm. And part of becoming a mature adult is becoming aware of the fact that you actually are not the center of the universe. You're part of something larger than yourself, right? And someone else is at the root of it all. Yeah. And that, um, that process is really aided, right? Through all the elements of a good education. And the written word is one of those opportunities Mm -hmm. that God has afforded us, right? To help make us aware of other people's thoughts, other people's experiences. And some of those experiences will really resonate with our own. Some will really come up against our own ideas. And I think that that's just as useful to us. Um, The challenges that we discover when we read, those things that don't necessarily articulate our own thoughts, um, but that force us instead to watch ourselves thinking sometimes are more profitable to us than those that just ape our own words back in our faces. So you're saying it's critical. It's critical to be involved in this kind of conversation oh, absolutely. for your own good. Yes. It's, it, I think it's um, a necessary part of drawing the individual to a clear understanding of who he is, um, what, what manner of creature he is, right? right. And um, his part in the larger universe. Right. Well, and I think, um, and it, there's a, there's a quotation I'd like to read from from Lewis, um, where he talks about this. But the the, the conclusion that he draws actually takes this one step further. He's defending um, the literary pursuit of that conversation, and we could talk later if you wanted to about how that conversation exists in a lot of different um, disciplines, in all the disciplines actually. Mm-hmm. But since we're here to talk about literature, um, what Lewis actually does is draws that comparison out into worship and love and moral action and all kinds of knowing. And basically says the study of literature belongs in in importance alongside those other things. That's a pretty dramatic thing to say, but um, let me just read that passage and talk about it a little bit. Please. Um, Lewis says, those of us who have been true readers all our life seldom fully realize the enormous extension of our being, which we owe to authors. We realize it best when we talk with an unliterary friend He may be full of goodness and good sense, but he inhabits a tiny world. In it, we should be suffocated. The man who is contented to be only himself, and therefore less a self, is in prison. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others. Reality, even seen through the eyes of many, is not enough. I will see what others have invented. In reading great literature, I become a thousand men, and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad eyes, but it is still I who see. 
Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself and am never more myself than when I do. So, Ian, what do you make of that? Well, I guess what I make of it is that um, even though this great conversation uh, transcends disciplines um, and is really, like we've been talking about it this whole time, um, the focus of the experiment of human knowing, I guess we could call it, <laughs> right? The, the human's meditation on itself. Uh-huh. Um, perhaps none of those disciplines are as um, philosophically and emotionally loaded, and maybe I want to say emotionally loaded more importantly, um, than literature is. Uh, because in literature, it's, um, I guess, cloaking something in fiction, uh, like Lewis is talking about here, I will see what others have invented. Yeah. Um, cloaking something in fiction loads all of these other disciplines with um, weight and power to communicate uh, to one's soul, not just one's mind. Uh. Um, and I think that's what he's talking about when he compares it to worship uh, or to love. The, because that's the that's the project of an education to extend your being beyond your own mind, beyond the confines of your own mind. And so Lewis is arguing that literature is a uniquely powerful way for us to do that. Right. And we would are are we all saying that not only is is literature a uniquely powerful way to do that, but that doing that in one some way, in one way or another, is a necessary part of a good education. Well, I think so. Oh, absolutely. What about the non literary among us? I mean, at Center for Lit, we sort of exist to encourage the, the literary impulse and to give tools to uh, people wanting to move in a literary direction. Does that project exclude people? Well, you mean like the math science guys? Yeah, the math science guys, maybe. Well, of course not. I mean, we're not saying that the only literature that can do this for you is fiction, right? When we talk about the best that's ever been thought or said, we're talking the best that's ever been thought or said in any discipline, ah. right? in any genre. Ah. Um, so there would certainly be the best that's ever been thought or said by the mathematician. You know, we'd have to include some of those mathematical works in our list as well. Are mathematicians asking the great questions? Are they participating in the great conversation? Well, that's a hard question to ask of a non-math maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not asking you, Missy. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I would have to say yes. I would answer yes, although I'm not necessarily as versed in those conversations as I ought to be. I mean, they look at things from a slightly different perspective, but it comes to the same conclusion, right? They think what what makes up a man, what makes up the world, what physically, and what truth can we glean from those facts about who we are? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And mathematics is a is a an investigation into the nature of reality, maybe non-physical reality sometimes, but it's still an right. investigation into how is this world set up and what are the rules, the rules that, govern, that it? govern it? That's a universal question if there ever was one. Absolutely. And, and what do those rules imply about those philosophical truths, right? The presence of a creator who ordered it or the absence of one. Um, they're weighing in on those same questions that those who wrote um, with the great works of fiction were asking, but from their own perspective, their own interests, their own fields. Right. So maybe the great conversation then, in my own definition of it, is expanding as we talk to include more than just writers in philosophy and literature. Now we've got scientists and mathematicians, writers of all stripes, maybe even writers in uh, you know, applied science, engineering, and things like that, perhaps. Well, and the beautiful thing about the liberal arts is that we can talk to each other, even though we're not cam- coming from the same perspective. 
uh, as long as we're asking the questions, there's room for that conversation to take place between us, which fosters relationship between the disciplines. Mm. And humility as well, because, um, right. for example, I'm not a math mind. And so I need math minds around me to help me ponder those things from the perspective that I do not have myself. Yeah. Right. Right. I gain from their right. vision, from their gifts, and I'm enriched by the things that they have to say. And that's true, whether exactly. the things that they have to say are things um, with which I would agree or disagree. One of the one of the things I love about this idea is that reading a book that contains falsity is beneficial as well, because in order to really identify it as something that's false, I have to truly understand it, right? I have to listen and understand and then grapple with the idea in order to discard it as a falsehood or to count it as a falsehood. I have to re review truth. So those books that contain error are sometimes more beneficial to me even than those that just contain truth because they force me to go over the ideas and to own them again and to better understand the truth in light of the falsehood. Well, and not only that, but as we were saying earlier, most works contain both truth and error, mm -hmm. even uh, some of our favorites like Aristotle, you know, even those ones that are treasured as uh, truth. As classics. Contain air. Yeah, right. Right. And, and so uh, when we approach something that we, you know, uh, generally think we're going to disagree with and are forced to read it and grapple with the ideas, well, actually, uh, well, we might encounter some truth in there, too, yes. which uh, is a good forcer of humility. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. This, this of course, is is the uh, the idea of the conversation. Absolutely. That's the reason the word conversation is so critical to this, that it's a two-way street of communication. It's iron sharpening iron. Yeah. You know, I, Mortimer Adler said it this way, and I think he says it better than I do. He says, on any subject being considered, the relation between truth and error is that of one to many. The truth is always singular, while the errors it corrects are manifold. This fact should not be thought as invidious to the worth of reading the great books. On the contrary, it is of the greatest positive importance. No truth is well understood until and unless all the errors it corrects are also understood and all the contradictions found are resolved. It is in the context of a plurality of errors to be corrected and of contradictions to be resolved that the brilliance of the truth shines out and illuminates the scene. I just think that that's, that's such a, um, an articulate way of putting this that we're talking about, yeah. right? That in the plurality of truth and error that we discover in the great works, um, we're forced to grapple with these ideas and the truth shines out more brilliantly than, it, than maybe we even saw it before mm. because we see the things that it corrects, mm -hmm. right? The things that are preserved, and our understanding of the truth then is developed, heightened. It becomes more three-dimensional to us. I once had a conversation with a college professor friend of mine who said, in a room where everyone agrees on the basic questions of life, nobody is examining the basic questions of life. I think that's really true. Nobody is asking right, the basic I, questions if he's in a room full of people that already agree with him on those questions. And it, it fosters the opposite um, response that, that we're hoping the great conversation will foster in our kids, which is humility of mind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
I was just thinking that uh, we're reading the hiding place now for our junior high class, and then I was just reading the part where Corey Ten Boom talks about just realizing or having that truth come to life in in the darkness because it's in the darkness that the light shines more brightly. Same idea. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and we have, as I love the way Adler puts it, that uh, in the history of ideas, a history of intellectual activity and th- that activity written down, there is a multiplicity of errors. And in each successive stage, the author is trying to use his understanding of truth to resolve the contradictions and correct the errors. And so we have a record on virtually any eternal question, universal question we could name. We have a record of the best writers and thinkers that our civilization has produced trying to do that very thing. Mm -hmm. That's a great treasure trove. It certainly is. That's available to us. Now, my next question, though, is this. What other pursuits besides reading those guys might we conceive to be involved in the great conversation? Obviously, reading and writing for us and for our students is critical. We read a book that is a participation in the great conversation. We have, uh, we get our minds around what this author's contribution is. Maybe we have reactions to that. We write them down. And so we participate in our own way in the great conversation. Is this confined to readers and writers or can we conceive of even, even broader way to participate? I think it's much broader than that. For the main reason that um, you know what we've, what we've been talking about is that you're participating by living, um, and I think that that's definitely true in in day to day pursuits. Um, for example, what Lewis is talking about when he talks about um, seeing through other people's eyes, uh, he's encapsulating the, the idea that when you pick up a book, you're encountering someone else's mind, and it's a particularly articulate mind, and it's a very careful mind and a brilliant one, and so communicating with that mind is possible, even though they're long dead and the book is all that's left of them. Yeah. However, we're walking around in the world next to articulate minds all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And so just the process of human relationships, um, pursuing one another uh, in conversation um, can, can be participation in that great conversation as well. It's just not on the stage. I mean, it just doesn't become, um, those conversations aren't, we're not privy to them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. They're smaller, right. there's smaller conversations more going localized. on, more localized conversations. Um, in terms of the great conversation, the one that becomes accessible to all men, I would say anything that, that participates in the arts. So, you know, visual arts, um, theater, movies. All of those are formats for a discussion of the great conversation, as well as how about experimentation in the field of science? Mm-hmm. That's a, a living participation, active participation in this great conversation. I, I love what you said about movies just a second ago, because I'm always thinking about how this relates, how this discussion, this concept of the great conversation relates to the homeschooling project. Since a lot of our people are involved in homeschooling regularly on mm-hmm. a daily basis. Um, one of the things that we as Americans have in common is we go to the movies all the time. Right. We watch a ton of movies in this particular culture. And the idea that a movie is a is a direct act of participation in the great conversation is potentially a really powerful thought. Some of them anyway. I, I don't know if I could say that. I certainly think so. Uh, as a blanket comment. But I, I don't know. say that about all literature either. I mean, some some literature um, wouldn't qualify in, in, uh, in terms of 
belonging in the great conversation. Well, but I think, I think maybe, and maybe Ian, you have an opinion on this that's stronger than mine even, but I think that every, every, uh, movie mm-hmm. is a de facto contribution Dumb and to dumber, the great, fun, totally great conversation. What do you think about that? Ian? Yes, mom. Dumb and dumber. Yes, dumb and dumber. You can make an yes. argument that dumb and dumber really does partake <laughs> I, of the great I've, conversation. I've, I've got like to hear this. I've got to hear this. I guess what I'm trying to say is, and, and we're going to reverse engineer it for you. Um, we've been talking this entire time and waving around the phrase humility um, as hard as we possibly can. Right. We've been we've been using it as a buzzword almost in this conversation because the kind of mind that's going to get an education and that's going to be a complete person at the end of the day is a humble one. What are you too proud for dumb and dumber? It's funny. Isn't it hilarious? <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't hold on, hold on, don't don't interrupt me. Doesn't doesn't also the heart doesn't doesn't also God laugh at all of us and the stupid things that we do. Okay, I'm not arguing I mean, I'm not that there's that. room for humor in the st- human life. Of course there is. I'm just asking does Dumb and Dumber partake of the question asking that we're talking about, about what it means to be a human being, what is love and what is a good love, all those kinds of things. I don't, I'm not yeah, sure, sure that it's really aiming at, it been, at that how kind of game. Since you've seen Dumb and Dumber? How long has it been since you've seen Dumb and Dumber? Oh, I don't know. Ian and I, Maybe too the whole, long. Movie, the whole movie is about friendship. That whole movie is about what is a good friend and how does a good friend treat uh, his buddy. And it's not a particularly deep meditation, but it's a meditation nonetheless, de facto, because it is, it's an opinion about that. It depicts a friendship from start to finish. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that Dumb and Dumber is Charles Dickens or anything like that. But I do think that one of the easy to fall into pitfalls of being an academically minded person is that you miss out on elements of the culture that are around us that actually have something to say. I would agree with that. And I, and I, the reason I asked the question is that it's, I'm interested in forcing open as widely as possible and forcing the idea of the great conversation into as broad a context as possible, because I hope that our listeners will end up being um, uh, self-conscious thinkers in every area of their lives. When they're at the movies on the weekend, when they're in their job doing menial tasks, it would be, um, I think to everybody's benefit to be self-consciously aware of yourself as a thinking person. And so it's interesting to me to hear you say that, a you know, cheap, cheesy comedy could be a, a statement in the great conversation. One of the things that Ian and I always say is that we, we don't discount anything unless, I mean, the only thing that we wouldn't recommend is the the, I don't want to say the grotesque because that has a place too, but like the, the gross, like the, pornography and things like that. Right, the pornographic and not just sexual por- pornographic, but there can be uh, violence that's pornographic stuff that uh, is to it. Like, obscene. Yes, obscene. that's the word I'm looking yes. for. The obscene is it doesn't really hold a place, and we want to avoid that. But that mars humanity is what you're saying, as opposed to exploring right, humanity. Right. Well, it's it, it's a disrespectful. Um, yes. I mean, that's kind of it. Everything else uh, in some way, whether consciously or no, is is taking place in this conversation. That's a right. fascinating idea, a fascinating idea. And of course, we would say as uh, as quickly as we can, that it's up to every parent and every teacher to decide, decide where to draw the pale right. for his or her own family, his or her own students. But the idea that right. every work of art or every, every um, piece of intellectual activity is a participation in the great conversation, a product of our culture that's actually saying something about these universal questions is a powerful idea. 
It is. Well, yeah, I, and, and I think the response that we need to have that's really crucial, and maybe the reason I get so heated about film and, and TV is that um, it's very easy to look at those pop culture things and say, well, it's pulp fiction. I mean, it's pop culture. Um, and, and we don't we don't need to waste our time as serious thinkers on that sort of thing. In fact, maybe there's a moral component to it even. Maybe it's immoral for us to spend our time on elements of pop culture because – Here's a big list of things that we've decided are good, and here's a big list of things that we've decided are bad. However, the moment we say something like that, and again, the obscene ought to be excluded anyway, but the moment we make a judgment like that, we've done something that's not fundamentally humble in the way that we approach the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's the benefit of uh, being educated in the great conversation from the start. Uh, when you take part in the history of authors that are... Uh, lined up before you, you can take that and apply it to the world that you live in. Right. You can watch those sorts of things without any fear because you've already taught your mind to sift the wheat from the chaff and to toss the chaff out. We think about this in in uh, in the field of literature when we read the 20th century American authors, F. Scott Fitzgerald and uh, Ernest Hemingway, for example, who uh, lived in a very dark time and were motivated by some pretty uh, dark ideas, some some deep level hopelessness and some nihilism and that sort of thing. And the fiction that they produced is, if you're looking at it from a moral perspective or uh, from a um, how much truth does it have, capital T truth of the you know of the scriptures in it, scores a zero in a lot of ways. But uh, it's just kind of like what you were saying. The contribution that those authors made to the great conversation says a lot about where America was in the 20th century. It says a lot about the kinds of questions that human human beings ask about a world that they're afraid isn't under their control. And if you set aside the urge to quickly judge based on a particular moral and religious perspective and go ahead and try and understand not just the answers that Fitzgerald and Hemingway were giving to the questions of life, but the questions themselves, their actual participation in the conversation was an an asking of questions rather than a delivering of answers. Uh, What you'll find is that those questions lie in the, in the root of every man, what regardless of his religious and moral commitments. I mean, Hemingway, good grief. What do we do in a world that is controlled by forces that don't care about us? Forces that are beyond our control and have not do not have our good in mind. Impersonal forces. Yeah, what do you What do you do in that situation? And frankly, everybody needs to ask that. Well, if for no other reason than to understand their neighbor who might not think just like them, who might not, um, you know, participate in um, in any kind of a faith. You know, yeah. we're surrounded by people who basically assume the worldview of Hemingway. They are nihilists. Right. We live in a nihilistic postmodern world, yeah. you know? And so in order to even con- be conversant with people that don't necessarily embrace Christian doctrine like we do, um, basically understanding the things written by someone like Hemingway would be a first step to being able to understand our neighbor. Is there a difference between between hearing somebody else's contribution to the great conversation and chucking in your own is what, there a difference yeah. between hearing how do we how own? do we participate is it a two, is participation in the great conversation a two oh i see what are you there mean. two processes yeah what do, what comes first the chicken or the egg first and, you got to listen right and what does speaking look like in other words can you participate in the great conversation just by reading um we <laughs> there's a character of a student that uh 
Ian and I often joke about that's often found in the, you know, college and post-grad classroom <laughs> of the person who who participates in class by saying, well, that's interesting. Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> that's interesting. And just, <laughs> and just uh, coming up with a plethora of questions and just saying that's interesting instead of uh, have coming to a conclusion on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, you do have to sift through the, the wheat and chaff and decide what you think is the wheat. You have to engage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's kind of what I was going at because, because a lot of people could be listening to what we're saying and, and, and interpret us as advocating just a complete smorgasbord in, to, of ingesting all sorts of, of, um, of artistic output, literature and movies mm-hmm. and all, and just basically indiscriminate. without indiscriminately eating it all without regard to what's good and what's bad. And I wanted to suggest that part of the participation in the great conversation is this sifting that Emily is talking about, that that's incumbent upon us as consumers of culture to actually end up oh, saying, yeah. I, I embrace this and this I'm in, in my role as the, you know, um, discriminating reader or discriminating consumer. I, I reject. Is that fair? Oh, I think it's absolutely fair. And I'm glad that you brought that up in relation to what Ian was saying a little while ago, just to discriminate between classics that are part of the great conversation and a current attempt to participate in the great conversation. One of the things that a classic affords you is um, basically the judgment of time, right? Yeah. Because only the things that were really laudable contributions to the great conversation, not necessarily the truth, but laudable demonstrations of a thinking mind engaging with those questions. Um, those are the things that remain that we call classics. And so we already know that those are worthy to, to some extent, time and civilization has deemed them worthy of preservation right. and rereading, right? And so we can go to those in order to engage in that conversation. The things that are coming out now, we can't call them classics yet. Um, they may very well be partaking of the great conversation in their own ways, and some of them will become classics. We don't know which ones yet. So when we approach them, um, I think basically what we're getting is our culture. We're getting the idiom of our day, yeah, of our time. Exactly. It's making us culturally conversant and aware. Mm-hmm. Um, how many of those things are things that are pertinent only to our time. Well, time will tell. Yeah. Um, I think it's very important. Maybe not always. It's not the same thing as um, engaging in those classic works. No, that have I think been that's probably down through the ages. Right. right. So when we come to what's present, um, I think there is a, a degree of necessity if for no other reason than because our time is very limited, right. To discriminate, to one degree or another. Yeah. Um, and as parents, all the more so to decide what is, um, what is going to be beneficial to our kids in, uh, in the question asking process. Some things are going to, um, recommend themselves a little more strongly as, um, movies, books, um, music, uh-huh. art that we want our kids to engage in. Yeah. Right. And we may, like Ian said, draw the pale a little more widely for ourselves 
Yes. As already having come into our own minds, being in possession of them and to some degree as right. adult thinkers, right? right? We can broaden our net. Whereas with our children who have not yet come into possession of their own minds, who are learning to ask these questions and um, struggling to come to some sort of ability to do what Emily just suggested when faced with these ideas, not just to say, oh, interesting, but to say, oh, that's interesting. I see truth and falsehood here. Um, this is really challenging to me. I've never thought about this this way before. What do I think about that? And then come down somewhere on one side or the other with some sort of understanding, right? Some knowledge of their own um, that sets direction in their own hearts and minds. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, I think that's a really important process. And, and it's one thing to understand. The whole point of this discussion is to sort of throw the idea of the great conversation out on the table and describe what it is and how understanding it can be useful and give us some direction in our, in our personal reading and also in our work with our kids. But it's a separate thing to be a parent in the, in a world where the great conversation is going on and decide to what degree your students are ready to participate freely. Mm-hmm. And that's a different, uh, a different job. As a matter of fact, there are some other things that would be, I think, good of a good for us to talk about at some point. Um, how do you go about participating in the great conversation? And I was sort of leading to that um, here as we conclude this podcast, because I think we're going to take that up our next time around, specifically with respect to reading and literature. How should the interested person who wants to get involved in the great conversation go about it? What books should he read? How widely should he read? What are the techniques for reading that actually make a good participant and make that conversation fruitful for the individual? And I hope that we'll be able to get to those um, next time. Any final thoughts before we uh, before we adjourn? So, what are you going to do uh, this next week by way of participating in the great conversation? Let's have a let's have a vote from everybody. What are you going to read before we meet again? Well, this is going to sound super pretentious, but I'm actually about three quarters of the way through War and Peace. That <laughs> Believe does, it or not, that does that sound is pretentious. A true thing. I've been getting up early in the morning and getting my pages. I'll take, <clears throat> I'll take another uh, stereotype. I'm almost finished with the Silmarillion. Oh, come on, awesome. <laughs> I, I am reading The Devil in the White City, and it is fantastic. The Devil in the White City. Who wrote that? Eric Larson. It's uh-huh. good. It's uh, he's a journalist uh, who's doing some historical digging, and uh, it's written like a it's a page turner fiction kind of book. But every piece of dialogue um, and every fact in it is taken from an actual account. Like there's no dialogue that wasn't part of a letter or a transcript of some kind. So it's we- essentially historical journalism. Oh wow, that sounds great. great. What kind and of contribution kind of- to the great conversation is that going to make? Well, it's it's kind of comparing the genius of uh, this prolific serial killer who was kind of, uh, he was inspired by Jack the Ripper who had just uh, done his work in London and was doing awful things and compares his twisted genius to the genius of the artists and architects uh, building the Chicago World's Fair. Ooh, that's quite the comparison. Um, it's definitely a meditation on human nature. Right, For like sure. the, the dark and the light. Interesting. Wow. Human well, intelligence. Well, I think I will read that one next. Uh, meanwhile, however, I am reading um, C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory, 
before I go to bed at night, which is a collection of little short essays by C.S. Lewis on various topics. I just read one that where he um, gave the commencement address at a college Mm -hmm. and uh, it's called learning in wartime. No, it's called the inner ring. Oh, I love that. And it's describing the urge that we all have to belong to an inner circle Mm -hmm. and how, and this is such a great phrase. He says, if you give into that urge, eventually you will be a scoundrel. Interesting. Yeah. Very, speaking of commentaries on human nature, it's pretty riveting. Um, when I get done with that, I'm going to read a cheap murder mystery, which is sitting next to my C.S. Lewis. I like to keep it. Uh, I like to keep it real on the bedside table. There. I think I have an Agatha Christie waiting. I just finished Lila, um, the third in Marilyn Robinson series that starts with Gilead and then goes oh, yeah. to home. Right. Lila was really dark. Really. Very dark. Hmm. Um, yeah, the darkest of the three, and. Um, there was redemption there towards the end, a little bit of light creeping through the crevices and the cracks. But I think I have to reread it. It was definitely dark to the bitter end. Mm. Interesting. Wow. Well, um, let's all go forth and uh, continue our own participations in this great conversation. And then let's, re- let's re-adjourn next time and talk about some specific ways uh, to get involved. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. I think this was inspiring and encouraging as usual. I hope we've um, given you some things to think about. If you have any responses, uh, you can get in touch with us at centerforlit.com anytime. Our email addresses are all over the website. Uh, if, also, if you're interested in joining the Pelican Society, you can find information at centerforlit.com about joining our membership program where you can re- receive uh, all kinds of great member resources, free teacher guides, free audio books, discounts on all of our products, and our online academy tuition. Thanks for joining us, everyone. It's been a pleasure. Until we meet again, happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit podcast network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.